This is Rings of Hell, a No Olympics LA and Knock LA production, examining the history, impact, and possible future of the Olympic Games in Los Angeles. And I think it's important to you know recognize that you know this is the bid committee, the LA 2024 slash 2028 bid committee is effectively a, it's a corporate entity, right? So it's a corporate entity that is you know raising you know millions of dollars in order to you know lobby the IOC uh, to basically dictate the terms of uh, a contract that they then set up the city to sign and are then responsible for. Episode two: Who wins when the Olympics come to town? Power mapping the 2028, Garcetti, Wasserman, 84 Foundation, and Big Capital. Hey all, welcome to episode two of Rings of Hell. I'm your host Bushido Squirrel, and today we're going to be examining who wins when the Olympics come to town. Now often the Olympic Games are sold to cities, countries, as something that's basically free, that any money that they do spend will be made up for in tourist revenue. But this is largely not the case. Often the people who profit the most from the Olympics have no connection to the city, and the people who do live in the city where the Olympics are held often suffer great harm. So in this episode, I'll be joined by Anne, Steve and Johnny from the Democratic Socialists of America Los Angeles chapter, as well as No Olympics Los Angeles. How are you all doing today? Wonderful. Thank you for having us. Yeah, great. Very nice. It's not very hot in LA today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, climate change is not real. Taking yeah. a break. But so to get started, let's talk a little bit about what this bid looked like, because the, the bidding for the Olympic Games is a little bit of an arcane process. It's not very democratic. It's kind of hidden away from the people in the city that it's actually going to affect. So so let's talk about what that looks like. Right. So it's like the, you know, um, one of the key people who obviously wins in any Olympics and this one in, in the 2028 one included is the IOC, which is the International Olympic Committee. And they've been around for over 100 years now. And it's they're comprised by some very rich, wealthy, a lot of times people sitting on a lot of generations of passive wealth, a lot of royalty, a lot of scumbags, which we can go into more detail. But they basically kind of set the schedule um, for the bidding process. And then local officials kind of scurry around to meet them. And in, and in our particular circumstance, it was already a very weird, old school, arcane process. And then they switched it all up at, at, at the last minute and making it extra bizarre and extra weird is, I guess, the, the broadest way to talk about it. Um, the IOC, so the International Olympic Committee, um, is headquartered in Lausanne, Switzerland, which is a tax haven. Um, so they, as a group, are essentially accountable to no one. Their finances are inscrutable. Uh, they have no, um, there's no transparency around who becomes a member and how. Uh, they, you know, we, we spend a lot of time and um, actually right outside the rooms where we're recording this podcast uh, is hanging a poster that one of our members made uh, riffing off the monorail episode of The Simpsons, um, you know, where the monorail salesman goes from city to city and essentially tells the people of Springfield uh, how great the monorail is going to be, but threatens to take it somewhere else if they don't cooperate with all of the, the various rules if they ask too many questions. And that's kind of how the IOC has historically operated. Where it's more they, of a Shelbyville idea. <laughs> right. The people of Springfield are not progressive enough for the Olympic Games. And um, yeah, they, they set the schedule. We've seen from other resistance movements, anytime there is a hint of democracy or the city asks the IOC to remove some of its more ridiculous mandates from the host city contract, that was kind of the downfall of the Oslo bid is that the people of Oslo were, you know, 
tentatively interested in supporting the Olympics. There was some support, but what a lot of the um, the residents of Oslo and then local officials said is, we don't want to pay for the IOC, who, as Johnny mentioned, are people who are already extremely wealthy. It's a lot of members of royal families. They said, we don't want to pay for their hotels and their travel and their $900 a day per diem and their special traffic lanes and their special airplanes. Uh, and the IOC said, all right, like we're out. So that's that's kind of how the bidding process typically works is they they set the schedule. Um, we saw for L.A., as Johnny mentioned, we had this kind of special circumstance where, you know, the Olympics are historically unpopular. So many cities dropped out for the 2024 bid that only L.A. and Paris will, were left. And in kind of a face saving move, the IOC said we'll award it to both cities at once, but only if we can come to a collective agreement about what the order of that is. It's a win, 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 right? <laughs> Uh, and so our city council, uh, Eric Garcetti and Casey Wasserman spent a lot of time in Switzerland and we can get into what the implications are that for the amount of time our mayor spent hammering out this backroom deal in Switzerland. Uh, uh, but they were able to come to a deal with the IOC, which we don't think is a favorable deal at all for L.A. Um, and at that point, city council was given, I think, eight or nine days to vote and decide whether to authorize Garcetti to sign the host city contract. And one of the things that we brought up in front of city council um, was that there was essentially no reason for them to do this other than to meet the demands and timeline of the IOC. Can I ask real quick, is bidding for the Olympics free? Like, I assume that they're paying to fly Garcetti out to make his presentation. Like, this is all very cheap for the city of L.A., right? Well, it's in this case, um, it is uh, Casey Wasserman, who was, he's one of, so Eric Garcetti is, is the kind of figurehead. He's the unofficial, I think, figurehead of the, Bid. I mean, he's, yeah, he's, he, he was part of the bid. He and Gene Sykes and Casey Wasserman were the three the chairs, chairs of of the 2024, which became the 2028 bid. Um, so they, those were the three people driving it. Gene Sykes was coming from a banking background in, at um, at uh, Goldman Sachs. Casey Wasserman, whom, whose CV we'll get into in a bit, is a private multi-millionaire, quote-unquote, philanthropist, media mogul, uh, slash whatever else you got. And then Eric Garcetti is obviously our mayor. Um, those are the three driving, uh, the three principal um, figureheads of the bid, and now, which will transition into the organizing committee. And I think it's important to you know recognize that you know this is the bid committee, the LA twenty twenty four slash twenty twenty eight bid committee. It's effectively a, it's a corporate entity, right? So it's a corporate entity that is you know raising you know millions of dollars in order to you know lobby the IOC. Uh, to basically dictate the terms of uh, a contract that they then set up the city to sign and are then responsible for. Um, so, you know, that kind of gets back to this notion of the undemocratic nature of this. Like, not only is the International Olympic Committee this undemocratic body, the United States Olympic Committee, who are the ones who nominate Los Angeles to be a, 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 a city, not a democratic organization that we don't How are they doing on. right now, the USOC? <laughs> USOC, I don't know. Try Googling USOC and anything yeah. <laughs> right now. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and then these, uh, you know, bid committees, which then turn into organizing committees, they're, they're corporations. Yeah. And it's, and it's, and so I think, yeah, it's a series of like Matrushkin dolls of like different Olympic kind of shell companies. But um, to answer your question, where the money comes from for them to go to South America, to Lausanne, to, this is a multi-year process. I think it's between a three and four year process when it's all said and done. So how they got the money to do that is they, rise, they raised it privately. They bragged about how 
easy how fast. how fast it was for Casey Wasserman to call some of uh, some of his rich buddies. They got sixty million dollars, six zero million dollars together for. Uh, propaganda, media, um, travel expenses, uh, whatever else. And so that is theoretically what they were traveling on to different countries. But what we also know now, which we didn't know then, is that LAPD was running security for the mayor on these trips. And so there, it, not only was it taking his time, which is a, a valuable public resource, which is was not accounted for, but we taxpayers are also still somehow paying for these um, extravagant vacations and excuses for him to fundraise and build more power. So yeah, so so it was, it was very easy. When it looked like it, the, the bid might be in question, actually, they flipped the script. I don't know if you remember this, where they made it look like, no, we can't go through the bidding process again. We'd have to raise 60 more million dollars. It, it, it was a really easy thing like um, earlier in the summer, but by the end of the summer, all of a sudden, it was really hard to raise 60 million dollars. And, and I have to ask, uh, you know, just back of the napkin math, uh, even a couple of international flights, a really snazzy PowerPoint presentation, I'm, I'm nowhere near 60 million dollars. Where is that money going? I mean, I realize it's not possible public funds, but still, like, that seems like a, a huge opportunity for grift. Yeah, I, I know at least about uh, one million of those dollars where it went. Oh, yeah. the um, One of the reporters for the LA Times, David Wharton, did a really great breakdown since um, since the bid committee is, I think, technically like a nonprofit. They have to release their taxes publicly. Uh, so one million of those dollars went to one of Casey Wasserman's companies. Um, they were paid to be, I think, marketing consultants. Uh, and it was Casey had nothing to do with that decision, by the way. Mm-hmm. Right. Officially, <laughs> it he was left very the room interesting that to us because yeah. this this also came out kind of around the same time as a lot of um, a lot of kind of you know liberal, like mainstream liberal and progressive journalistic outlets and individuals were criticizing and kind of calling out the. Um, yeah, the the ludicrous nature of like Donald Trump saying that putting his children in charge of his companies while he was president and like, oh, I'm not going to talk to them. Like, I have nothing to do with this. We're just pointing out how insane that was and how how completely ridiculous it was to claim that, you know, that that we had to question that. But um, something very similar happened. So when uh, the bid committee released this tax report and, you know, it was pointed out that a, a little over a million, I think it was like 1.2 or 1.3 million dollars went to one of Casey Wasserman's companies. Um, the LA Times followed up and asked, like, is this a conflict of interest? And there, the company's party line was like, oh, he recused himself from that decision. So it's not. And it was just interesting that like, and, you know, hypocritical that people can recognize like when a politician that they don't like does something like that, that it it is a conflict of interest. And of course, of course, it's ridiculous to assume that even if he on a very technical level was not involved in those conversations, he, you know, the people who made those decisions are his employees. So, of course, they're going to want to please their boss and to act in his interest. Right. Yeah, I mean, like L.A., as we know, whether media, some of these private and public institutions is already teeming with conflicts of interest and some of those we'll be getting into in this series and probably later in this episode but like like anything else what the Olympics does is pours gasoline on this problem we have it creates a whole new kind of mm-hmm. proliferation of these other conflicts of interest that we're trying and scrambling to catch up because 
they're sloppy and they're assuming people I think are checked out, whether it's the, 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 the specter of Trump and all this other stuff and or just people being checked out from politics in general, but there are tons of them and like that's part of our job is to tease these out and to like get the media and other kind of more quote unquote like um, like uh, objective sources to to validate these claims. A lot of um, what those funds went to as well, which we saw from the tax report, was um, paying some of the spokespeople, the people who are like Olympic boosters, are actually paid for their time and paid as consultants. Um, so a number of the the you know very famous, already wealthy Olympic athletes like Janet Evans, who have been public speakers for the Olympics, who I don't doubt that she also genuinely believes in the Olympic mission, but I, I think it's also worth pointing out and noting that she gets paid about $200,000 to periodically come and speak up in favor of the LA Olympic bid. I think it was something around that. It was like two hundred dollars or $250,000 is what she was paid. Um, yeah. And speaking of, yeah, speaking of paid speakers, on the day we went, um, the, the, when they cast their final decision at city council, there were many, there were many um, athletes that were there that were paid. Uh, they didn't disclose how much they were, but... Um, I mean, <laughs> and te- like on a very technical letter of the law level, they are not being paid specifically to give individual speeches, but they are on the payroll of the bid committee. Yeah, they're they're not going to keep paying them if they start suddenly trashing the Olympics in in every public appearance they make. Uh, and so Casey Wasserman. Uh, seems to have managed to hook up this transfer of a lot of money from wealthy people to other wealthy people. Um, I assume like private kind of corporate donors and stuff. What are the people who are giving money to the big committee and the eventual operating committee? What are they looking to get out of this? What do you think they think they're going to get? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we even know who these donors are um, because it. So, yeah, I mean, so we really don't know. I mean, if I had to guess, I would guess it was people on the similar par of having multiple. I mean, once you get to a certain level of wealth, you're mixed up in philanthropy, you're mixed up in media, you're mixed up in um, anything else that uh, real estate speculation developers, like big time, like people who own property, um, maybe even USC. I don't know, maybe like an academic institutions might be involved in this too, driving it or boosters from those places. Um, we know that there's a very small pool of extremely wealthy people in LA. I, I assume it's probably LA specific interests. That seems to make sense. I'll say too, I'll clarify, we don't know whether it is or not. We haven't seen it. This is just based on the LA Times reporting. Right. Yeah. But I mean, if you look at like, I mean, you just look at like, you know, Casey Wasserman being the, the you know, chair, one of the chairs of the, the bid committee and people responsible for making this, you know, this money happen. You know, I mean, just look at his management company's website. It is a sports entertainment and lifestyle marketing and management agency that represents brands, properties, and talent. I mean, these are on on a global basis, right? So, like, these are all you know people that he you know effectively represents and who have he's probably you know in his business relationships with these folks made the money. So, the thought that you know that they're not going to kick a couple million dollars his way for this big project that will also probably position them to make more money uh, seems like a pretty natural uh, natural marriage. And then one other thing I wanted to hit on that we kind of, you know, didn't really talk about in terms of like where this money goes um, is, you know, in terms of like what they used it for as opposed to like, you know, who stands to benefit from it um, is just marketing. I mean, they, you know, they did, uh, you know, a bunch of like marketing partnerships for the bid itself. You know, I ride transit a lot and they had, you know, a thing bragging like on all the metros, like bragging about how, you know, the 2028 games was or 2024 games at that time was going to uh, make transit better. Um, and then this like really cornball uh, web series that uh, Casey Wasserman starred in called What's Not in the Bid Book, um, where he went around and... Pal- no, what's in the bid book? Sorry. 
Oh no, it was what's not. Oh, new. is it not? I'm yeah, because yeah, because oh, it was okay. all about like highlighting like the the you know all like the real authentic LA things that like you're gonna uh, like experience. hanging out with Kobe Bryant in your walk-in closet that's the oh, size God. of my apartment. Yeah, and it was just so obvious. It was just so obviously like a transparently like you know uh, way of just like highlighting like things that he's already like people he's already friends with and like you know just like he was on the back lot like hanging out with George Lucas or something, right? Yeah, yeah, like yeah, the, the thing you normally do. Yeah. Hello, fellow Angel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, and maybe even to back up too to kind of um, explain who um, I know in the previous episode uh, we talked a little bit about Casey Wasserman, but um, he comes from an, an extraordinary, extraordinary amount of wealth and power. His grandfather was Lou Wasserman. He's also very famous for um, allegedly pushing uh, Ronald Reagan into politics because he got him to run for president of the WGA, and before that he hadn't thought. Of, I'm sorry, sorry. He got him to run for the president of SAG, of course. Um, and uh, which was the kind of um, his first foray into, into politics. And um, they were lifelong friends, you know, and he, obviously Reagan was there at the 84 Olympics. Um, so Casey Wasserman, um, both, and his father, Jack Myers, they were both um, kind of caught up in a literal and probably more uh, like white collar or like uh, socially acceptable forms of money laundering. Um, I mean, you know, at capitalism at that level is just money laundering. He has, for a while, he was kind of doing the George W. Bush thing with just kind of playing with um, granddaddy's money, um, screwing up a lot, uh, making a lot of expensive mistakes or kind of mm, things that didn't come to fruition. The big one was when he uh, and Garcetti tried to get that NFL stadium downtown, which was like a boondoggle and they actually successfully, I think a lot of people ran that out and for a lot of reasons that was a bad idea. He owned an XFL team before that um, which was only notable for having like a player die during a game you know what I mean just kind of like these really kind of like low level but like he owned a failed music production company too right yeah and, I think he, so. and I'm trying to remember there was one really embarrassing act that was on mm-hmm. their label yeah I, I yeah I mean there's there's so many different little kind of things that didn't go right and more in the aughts that I could see where they were just you know a kid with a thousand extra lives uh, gets to do and then I think when he was really kind of um, or he's made his name before the Olympics was with the Wasser it was formerly called Wasserman now it's Wasserman Media or vice versa his the, the company that Steve was talking about that's kind of a 360 agency that does sports mostly but like some other stuff and um and he also has his talents in a lot of um, in, in in philanthropy. He gives he gives very heavily to a lot of like art major mega art institutions, which are also devi- driving development and displacement. Um, he's a major donor to the LAPD. Um, a rumor has it that he was one of the first people that was called when they were looking for a new um, police chief to see for the LAPD of seeing what, what 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 he thought. He's a civilian. Why would you call this person? Obviously, because it's a transactional relationship. You give X amount of money, you get something in return. I'm he's sure he's a major Democratic Party donor. Yeah, he's a major Democratic Party donor. He's a he's a major investor in media. He's a board member at Vox, which owns a ton of media properties. It owns Curbed LA, um, which has been reporting heavily on this. Um, he's and also, very favorably. And very favorably in general. He's also uh, rumored to be behind other. Uh, major sports pop culture media interests that we're working on um, kind of uncovering and who have also been reporting on the 2028 Olympics um, without disclosing them. Um, he's uh, he's not someone, I mean, what is it? Like a, only a certain amount of people know who Eric Garcetti is. A lot fewer people know who Casey Wasserman is, but he's behind. So, And, and I think that's how he survives. Like I think he, he actually walks a weird line because I think obviously some of this is just about getting your name out there and continuing the legacy and the brand like Wasserman but like he knows that he has to kind of keep it 
he doesn't want to be a target the way that like Elon Musk is or someone like that. And he's not operating on billions of dollars, but he's but he has power and influence. And he between those t- between his ambitions and Garcetti's uh, political ambitions, they're a dangerous duo. And I think to Anne's point about, you know, kind of the, the Trump hypocrisy, right? Like when we're talking about, you know, this, um, you know, this this grift that's going on where, you know, uh, these familial relationships are being exploited. Um, you know, I think in somebody like Casey Wasserman's example, they, they get a pass, right? Because they're on the right side, right? Like they're Democratic donors. So like people don't see it as a conflict of interest. And in the case of, you know, the Olympic Games where like, you know, it is a massive conflict of interest because so many of these entities that he has a financial stake in uh, stand to benefit from having the games here. It's seen as expertise, right? It's sold to us as this like, oh, we should trust this guy because he knows sports media and marketing. And it's like, well, yeah, but he's also going to make shit ton of money uh, from all the sports media marketing expertise that he's leveraging as part of being involved in the organizing process. And he's going to make money no matter what. You know, it's like no matter how many people lose their homes, no matter how many people are targeted by law enforcement and are incarcerated, no matter how many people die, he is going to go into the 2028 games uh, extremely wealthy and he's going to come out even wealthier. Mm-hmm. None of his money's on the line. It's like producing a movie. You never put your own money on the on Right. <laughs> and that's something to in terms of like other people who benefit, you know, so the like NBC Universal, the companies that own the production rights, who televise it, um, all of the corporate sponsors. If you look at a city like Rio, right? Like Rio was devastated. The people of Rio are devastated. Rio has been begging the IOC to give them a break on the cost overruns because they're in such like terrible financial ruin. Um, but you see reports coming out all the time about how Rio was the most profitable Olympics ever for NBC. I mean, I, I think those stadiums they built that are now just bus parking was a very good use of the money there. Um, clearly Some that are developed. open air prisons. Oh, good. Even better. <laughs> uh, but I want to ask, because right now we've been, or uh, up until now, we've been kind of covering sort of the individuals and like these dynasties, these legacies that we see here in LA that seem to profit from every like thing that happens in the city. But what kind of industry entrances are we seeing? Are there specific industries that you think are going to be pushing this more that stand to profit a lot more than others? Yeah. I mean, one that isn't, you know, and we've been dancing around this a lot, and I mean, it's kind of, it occurs to me as someone who works within the media as that, like, it's kind of in most media outlets and individual reporters, um, unless they're going, going for a Pulitzer of, like, uncovering, like, why the Olympics are bad, it's mostly in their interest to report favorably on this because they know they're going to get more clicks for that year or two leading up to it. And even right now, if this is business. This is a story for them that doesn't exist. If we run the Olympics out of town, they're going to miss all these stories about the Olympics. Um, so that's just one thing I wanted to, like, underscore. But obviously, like, real estate, interest, uh, real estate interests are going to be driving this. And we were already seeing the effects of that happening in 2018. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Also, going back to Rio too, um, Carlos Carvajo, uh, whose name I might be butchering, but was one of the real estate developers who who really was like a primary architect behind Rio and behind like reshaping the city to um, meet his own bottom line uh, and, you know, and redeveloping the area around the stadiums and displacing thousands of people, um, in most cases, incredibly violently. 
uh, yeah, is also someone who profited tremendously from the Rio games. Again, while everybody else is suffering, everybody else, um, you know, people, it's pretty well agreed that the Rio games were a disaster for Rio, but there are a handful of, of industries and individuals who profited, including the real estate lobby. So, yeah, as, as I'm sure most listeners that, uh, of this podcast that are based in Los Angeles know, you know, we're in the midst of an affordable housing crisis right now uh, in the city. Um, you know, uh, rent prices are going through the roof. But at the same time, we're also in the middle of this major boom in development. And a lot of this development is happening at the high end. Right. Um, and, you know, there was recently a, a quote from, you know, uh, some real estate developer interests saying that like Los Angeles is like the hottest market right now for real estate development and for speculation. And, you know, when you see an event like the Olympics come to town, we saw this happen uh, in Vancouver. You know, uh, they were already not having a great time with uh, housing affordability. And then the winter games came to the city and it wasn't just during the games themselves, but it was literally right after the bid was finalized that the speculation in the real estate markets in Vancouver started to drive the cost of housing up, and it did not abate. Like it has gotten significantly worse, and I mean we see this throughout the entire western coast of North America. You know, in Vancouver, you know, uh, Seattle, um, you know, all the way down the coast to Los Angeles, that there's a tremendous, um, you know, uh, the, the the cost of housing has become completely untenable. Um, and then when you have these moneyed real estate interests who are seeking maximum return on investment of what is already some of the most valuable real estate in the world, you know, they're not going to be developing it for low income people. They're going to be trying to create a housing market that's going to benefit them. Um, and, you know, we've seen this playing out already right now in 2018 for a, a, a games that was billed as a no displacement Olympics, a no new building Olympics. We're still seeing building happening that is being done at the that is being done on the pretext of being needed for the Olympics. That's not a stadium, but it's a hotel because we have a hotel shortage apparently in Los Angeles that we need to demolish rent stabilized housing uh, to meet. Steve, where do you work again? Where do I work? Yeah. Uh, I work at a hotel. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we got a whole bunch of those in LA. So, and tourism uh, is booming. Is yeah. it? I mean, tourism is fine. It's not like we're in like a city that no one's ever heard of that people um, uh, that that obviously we have plenty of other needs. Yeah. Well, and it seems like the the one thing that's missing from all of the analysis of who's profiting is the people of LA. Um, you know, it seems like privately held foundations, corporations, things like the the LA84 foundation, they're going to be bringing in a lot of money. Uh, what do you think the city's prioritizing in this this bid? What do you who do you think they're aiming to please? Well, I mean, it's like everything else. It's who are they already prioritizing? It's like uh uh, uh foreign uh uh, real estate barons, um, uh, f any like moneyed interest or corporate interest from outside the city, or tourists who, or people who, do, by definition, are people who do not live in Los Angeles, um, and that's already happening. And it's and this is a this is the most um, dramatic form of that, like where you you literally hand over the city for the whole summer and then the years leading up to it, so that a few um, really wealthy or privileged or lucky individuals can have a good time. This is something that we're seeing happen a lot too, in in very um, kind of stark fashion in Tokyo right now, in terms of what the what, whose interests are prioritized around the question of climate change, right? And they have Where the Olympics in 
2020, right? And this has been like one of the hottest summers on record in Tokyo. And and so people are asking the question of like, what does this mean for the the games? But it's always it's always phrased in terms of what is this going to mean for the tourists who come? What is this going to mean for the people who we're trying to bring to the city and sell these massively expensive tickets? And I, that's another thing to to um, remark on too is uh, Tokyo just set a price cap of tickets, you know, so people can afford them. But the fact that that's even a question, right, is that these games are largely unaffordable and unaccessible to working people in the cities that are hosting them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, originally with 2024, when that was the, the idea, they um, they uh, estimated it was going to be a couple thousand dollars, I believe. I think it was like $2,500 for tickets to the opening ceremony. So add four years of whatever, just general inflation, plus who knows whatever is going to happen in those four years. And like, if you want to go, that's what my friends have joked to me. It's like, yeah, so the, are the Olympics coming? I was like, and this, this is one friend I know who has kids. He's like, I want to bring my kids to the Olympics. You know, he's kind of trying to troll me or whatever too, but he was kind of like, you know, if they come, I would like to go. And I was like, Start well, saving now. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I was like, do you want your kid to go to college or do you want your whole family to be able to go to the opening ceremonies? And then for what? that 529 plan. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're literally talking about like what is effectively the median rent in Los Angeles for tickets to see the opening ceremony. Yeah. And, you know, one can only imagine, you know, what the ticket prices would be like for some of the marquee events like basketball or beach volleyball or, you know, I yeah. mean, like, You'll be lucky if you can get into the 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 the, the what is it the the, the cyclodrome. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, if you if you can't afford to go to a Lakers or season tickets to a Lakers game or something like that, yeah. you probably will not. Unless you're lucky, unless you're a media like elite person, like who I understand. Like if you if you're like to my point earlier, it's like if you're a sports reporter, I understand why you want to cover this favorably because you want to be able to you you will get tickets yeah. if your outlet covers this but like most regular most people who are not millionaires uh well this is not for you you'd be you'd be, you'd be lucky to go and, and but it, it still begs the question of is that worth it is this transition worth it even in the event that you are a working person who manages to you know pull yourself up by your bootstraps and diligently save that money um there's a good chance that you would not be welcome in these events either due to the heavy surveillance and policing um, that's something else that we're seeing in Tokyo being pioneered as they're pushing facial recognition, facial scanning, and like you know combined policing, which is something LA has been exploring. Uh, Tokyo is implementing um, specifically like using the games as a context to start implementing it now. Um, so, so who else wins there too? It's like tech companies who are the people who uh, who profit off the yeah. innovation. So major military contractors yes. and yeah. tech companies, and some of them are probably sponsors firms. like Intel, maybe who might be one of the sponsors in twenty twenty. Yeah, private security firms yeah, and yeah. military contractors right too and pick up some palantir stock yeah right exactly so but yeah so it's like let's say you're you're a working class person of color in los angeles and you manage to save this money what are the chances that the facial you know recognition technology in the stadium picks up your face as something like gets you arrested um it's something right now in tokyo they're trying to sell actually they've done some like pretty incredible circular logic and spin on this that they're combining the two uh, the two sort of big concerns, like public concerns around climate change and uh, surveillance and security, to say they're now sort of backtracking and saying that the facial recognition uh, is an answer to climate change. Because they're like, the reason they're like, that'll keep it from getting too hot inside the stadiums because it gets too hot inside the stadiums when there are too many people there. But if we employ this facial recognition technology, we're going to be able to catch the bad people, the bad scalpers. Are they 
extra hot? Is that yeah. like? <laughs> well, it, and also, wasn't there that like GOP congressman who said that like in in testimony over climate change it was like, well, if we had less people on the planet, it'd be less warm. And you're yep. like, that uh, really? He's wow. definitely watching Alex Jones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another one of their proposed solutions, speaking again in terms of who benefits, is there uh, there is a proposal to ask all of the um, businesses that operate among like main streets in Tokyo to blast their air conditioning and open the doors during the games to cool the air outside (laughs) which is not how climates work and also is like so wasteful and so it's like so then so that burn a whole bunch of energy to keep it cool yeah so let's do the exact things that are at the root of our climate crisis we're gonna have our own climate justice episode down the road because it necessitates its own thing obviously I've been looking at uh, and and y'all at No Olympics have done some coverage of this of the Asian games uh, that will be hosted in Jakarta Uh, that is brutal let's talk a little bit about that because I think I don't know I don't know. I mean, I don't trust LAPD, you know, half as far as I could throw any single one of their officers. Um, I don't know if they go the full on like executing people on the street routes of Jakarta, but we see those linkages with these international games and that's not going to be completely divorced from LA, I'd imagine. Yeah. No, I mean, what we know is that um, no matter what is that police interactions will increase leading up to the games. And we know that the more police interactions are, the more likelihood of there being uh, firearms use and the more firearms are used, more like so like we may very well see stuff that is that blatant and, you know, people being, you know, what happens if they're trying to clear an encampment with one of their hope teams and someone is uh, resistant to them? Are they going to be more likely to use a firearm? Yeah. Probably like it, you know, it's, you know, we can't, and this is a good point too, to say like, we can't predict the future. They obviously can't either, but like, we know what the conditions are now and we know that um, we can't say when, where, this is, stuff is all going to happen because they won't tell us. They won't be transparent because in some cases they may not know. In some cases, it's not in their interest to tell anyone and, and to be on, on the nose about it. But And it's like LAPD, like this year for 2018-2019, for their line item budget was $1.6 billion with the, uh, the overages that they get through federal grants and like this, that, and the other thing. A lot of private donations. It's well over $2 billion a year. I imagine that budget will not shrink by 2028. Oh, no, no, not at all. And one thing that we heard, it was the day that we were down at city council um, – not getting to speak publicly about the FIG project, but one of our allies was listening to public radio, and um, this was when the the chief Michael Moore transition was about to happen, and um, someone made a comment that we would like, the LAPD would like to expand um, by about 25%, which is about 2,500 officers in the next 10 years. So that means more officers, more money to pay these officers, more money to pay uh, for lawsuits for these officers when they kill people in the next 10 years and lead up to this game and all that sort of stuff. So the LAPD is someone else who I think I think they're you know licking their chops. They know that they're going to get to play with new toys. They know that they're going to get more money to play with new toys. They're going to get more overtime. Mm-hmm. They, they're they a big one. And, and obviously all the other law enforcement agencies, um, you know, Sheriff's Department, but like specifically the LAPD. Yeah. And we talked about this a lot uh, in the 84 Games episode, um, you know, about kind of the legacy of police militarization with regards to, you know, Daryl Gates and, and the militarization that happened during the, the 84 Games and how, you know, there's this pattern of, you know, this stuff that's introduced for these big events and it just hangs around. It just yeah. becomes a part of the fabric of the, uh, you know, the, the infrastructure of the city. Uh, and when you have a city like Los Angeles that's already, like you said, spending $2 billion on uh, uh, policing and it's already one of the most hell- heavily militarized police forces in the nation. Um, and then you add on this, you know, massive uh, influx of, you know, personnel and uh, weaponry and technology and, you know, uh, drone program and, you know, 
uh, facial recognition software and it just, you know, it just creates the conditions for, um, you know, a mass uh, surveillance state. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, we kind of run up against in, in organizing in Los Angeles is, you know, that there are there are a few things that even, you know, self-identified progressive liberal Democrats love more than cops and law and order and this notion of, you know, uh, you know, they'll pay lip service to, you know, oh, the system's racially biased or whatever, but that like, there's still this unwavering loyalty to the boys in blue that, you know, uh, that, you know, they just, it just, they will never not have enough money to throw at these things. Um, and, and it's something like the Olympics just makes that even more likely to happen. And we're already seeing, you know, their Metro is getting ready to roll out, um, you know, scanners in the subway system. Oh, they already did. Yeah. yeah. But and they're we voluntary, believe- quote yeah. unquote. Yeah. yeah. And something else, too, is going to point out is that this is, is a fallacy that bugs the hell out of me is that with any event like this, but where they're saying if they honestly believe that having the Olympics here is creating such a threat that it would necessitate adding all this other infrastructure, then why are they having it? It's because they're not actually afraid of that. (laughs) (laughs) There is no real threat. This is, this, and it's, you know, because a lot of people, you know, if you're listening to this and you're maybe not sure about us or like, you know, kind of some of our claims, but like, we're not sitting that people, we're not saying that people are sitting around in like a dark room being like, how can we hurt as many people? It's not about that. It's about profit. It's like, how can we extract profit? Yeah, if you if you want to run a very uh, financially successful like tourist sector, uh, you're going to imagine that people who are unhoused are going to be a blight on that, and so you'll push them out. And if those people don't want to be pushed out, then you're going to use violence to do that. Uh, you're going to reformat the city in a way that makes people who travel in cars and travel with luxury comfortable, and people who are disabled or mobility impaired, they're probably not going to be able to get around. Folks who work in uh, sort of fringe or marginal industries like sex workers, they're not really part of this plan, it sounds like. So a lot of the folks who are already targeted, harassed and harmed by LAPD and by our city in general seem like they're going to have an even bigger target on their foreheads for this. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, I was going to mention, too, well, two of the things I wanted to mention um, first in terms of, uh, you know, whose needs are going to be prioritized. I think it's telling that the mayor's office is paying a quarter of a million dollars to a tourism consultant, whatever that means. (laughs) I want that job. Yeah, it's a good grift (laughs) um, to, you know, to advise the city on how to deal with homelessness um, from a perspective of driving tourism. Yeah. Which Among is other like, things, but yeah, that's, yeah. One of, that's one of the key things that they're focused on. And, and it's just... Uh, because just, homelessness makes tourists uncomfortable. Yeah and, that, yeah, and the idea that like that's the reason why we need to solve homelessness. It's like, can you give me $250,000 to just say build housing for them right. and put them in vacant <laughs> apartments? Like, yeah. Um, and then I'm, I'm glad you brought up too, one of the things I wanted to mention um, was the, the impact on um, folks with disabilities and particularly people who are, you know, who have mobility impairments. Um, you know, the Olympics are certainly not designed for folks who have a, who have challenges getting around and who are already struggling to get around Los Angeles. You know, our sidewalks need to be fixed. Bring up the monorail episode again. Our sidewalks are still cracked and broken in a lot of places. And ironically, um, we and we will have the Paralympic Games as well. Yeah, and that was something we heard from our um, our comrades in Korea. I was talking to them if, uh, earlier this year when the Paralympic and Olympic Games were happening over there, and they were saying one of the things that they were dealing with is that the Paralympics were not accessible to people in wheelchairs. 
people using if you were a spectator in a wheelchair you could not that um the bus because the you know they were held in sort of a, a rural area and so there were just there were no access routes and the buses that were coming from the major cities into you know into the games did not were not accessible for people who were using wheelchairs right I think an Olympic booster in the United States would say, well, this is an example of why we have to have the Olympics here because we're going to do it the right way. Right. Well, right. But I mean, it's like the Olympics in LA are taking place over 700 square feet, uh, square miles, sorry. Um, they're not going to make the entirety of Long Beach, the Valley in LA, ADA compliant and all this other stuff. And in reality, other offices in town that aren't immediately part of the Olympic program those needs are going to fall right. way down the list. Right. So if you're working in certain sectors of um, local government and you won't be directly part of this plan, congratulations, your entire career goals and maybe your life's work might be just um, put on hold uh, temporarily or forever because uh, we know that City Hall only ha and other you know organizations around town only have so much bandwidth to do so much work already. And, like, and this is going to suck up so much time. That's just one thing that just baffles me and yeah we also know too that you know folks with disabilities are often um you know uniquely like and disproportionately targeted with police violence um we know that that that's something that comes up over and over again especially when you're looking at um police violence towards unhoused folks that people with disabilities are just yeah are just like really like disproportionate targets of police violence and so that's gonna get even worse with more policing more policing you know means more of that and um something that came up too is we were talking to folks in rio and folks who were here for the 84 games is a lot of times what the olympics do for from like a security standpoint quote unquote is they create these massive barriers around certain areas and so people who live in certain neighborhoods near olympic venues will have to can no longer travel along the same routes to get to their homes. So like in Rio, for example, a lot of the folks who are living in kind of like, you know, working class neighborhoods around the venues, you know, there was uh, basically this like security perimeter set up. And so they couldn't, they could no longer access from like public transit. They couldn't come home from work and just like walk towards their house. They would have to walk around this like sort of like removed path, like out of the way pathway, basically so as not to be seen by the wealthy tourists who were coming in. Um, but which also meant for people, it's like if you were an older person or somebody who like maybe is not easily able to walk like four miles home after working in the dark along a you know a sort of like unlit poorly paved pathway yeah I, I think about every year when they have the Super Bowl they are there's always this big like copaganda uh, program that goes on about how they're cracking down on sex trafficking and this huge criminalization that comes along with that and these big events international events and even national events tend to bring you know, uh, a demand for sex work to the cities that host them. At the same time, the police use that as a good excuse to crack down on the people involved in that, rarely saving the victims and going after the perpetrators. It seems like this is just more recipe, more of that, more of the same for that, especially here in, in L.A. Uh, and it, I'm wondering... Is there any hope for those of us that are the little people, the hoi polloi of, of L.A.? The majority to, of us, you mean? Yeah, to, <laughs> to profit, to see a benefit from this in a material way other than just like the, the crumbs from the table like, oh, but look at the nice tennis courts that we didn't burn down after the games. Well, the saddest thing and the, and the one that we've, we're not surprised by immediately in the how sad it is for people to say, oh, I can't wait to Airbnb my place 10 years from now. 
Like that's 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 the one where where we. But have I would say if I you have a place, if you own a property in Los Angeles that you could Airbnb, then I wouldn't include you as a member of the Hoi Poi. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, the majority of us are, are renters in LA. That's a fact. Yeah. Like, um, we are the majority. We are the renters. Our rents are going to go up over the next ten years yeah. because of this. Um, um, we yeah. we we lose. <laughs> I would say, or to reframe that question slightly, um, the short answer is no, I don't think there are any opportunities whatsoever for people in Los Angeles who are not part of the sort of minuscule ruling class to profit from the games. Um, I do think there are a lot of opportunities for us to resist in solidarity and to try to like build the LA that we want to live in and to build the LA um, that would that would resist the game um, in LA that is defined by, you know, universal access to affordable housing, um, to the abolishment of police, uh, you know, and, and things like that. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, we'll have, I think, we'll kind of bring this first kind of series on home with like a discussion of like, so what does that 10 years kind of look like? Yeah. Well, if, if you stick with us through all these episodes, I think that'll be the last one yeah. of this of this run where we kind of really can break break that down and try to guess like, what does it look like? Where the kind of, moments where we can kind of um, Mm -hmm. seize some more power and um, where the places where there is instability. uh, There are many, actually. Yeah, there's a huge distinction between the way that, like, Olympic organizers in Tokyo are trying to, you know, basically, like, (laughs) <laughs> blow cold air onto climate change rather than dealing with that. And if you look at the work that like some of our coalition partners like SoCal 350 are doing to, you know, dismantle like fracking and pipelines and the things that are causing climate change, there are a lot of opportunities to do that, to do that kind of work. This has been sort of a, a depressing look into uh, <laughs> who's going to benefit from this. Um, I know I said I'd stick around and host, but I think I'm going to go change my last name to Wasserman because uh, okay, that yeah, seems yeah. to be like the, the key here. Uh, but anyways, well, he changed his last name from Myers. To from from Meyerowitz to Myers to Wasserman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a yeah, long so story. Wasserman, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Wasserman, yeah, yeah, yeah. The precedent's there. You can do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Casey Wasserman already changed his last name. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but let's, I, all change, let's all legally change our last name to Wasserman. Deal? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we're all going to go get the paperwork started on that. I want to say thank you all very much for uh, coming by and cluing us in on this. So we're going to be moving on next episode to transnational solidarity as we continue our look at the Olympics. Uh, thank you very much again for joining me. To learn more and get involved, please visit nolympicsla.com and knock.la.